Hello, and welcome to Entangled, the podcast where we explore the science of consciousness, the true nature of reality, and what it means to be a spiritual being having a human experience. I'm your host, Jordan Euclid, and today I'm excited to share with you an essay I wrote. I originally wrote this for my master's program until I realized it was off-topic and considerably longer than what the prompt had requested, so I submitted a more focused version of that essay for class but wanted to share the full one with you all. You can find the written version of this essay and all episode outros on entangledpodcast.substack.com. Please enjoy. Consciousness the next paradigm. I believe we are on the brink of a paradigm shift in modern science. This shift will replace our current broken ideas of mind-body duality and quantum mechanics with a paradigm based in consciousness. A physics that recognizes everything in our manifest existence, known as the gross realm of the senses, is connected through a subtler, abstract, unified field of consciousness that serves as the foundation for the entirety of the cosmos. This paradigm shift will be as important for our understanding of cosmology as was the shift from a geocentric to a heliocentric model during the scientific enlightenment. This paradigm shift will impact all fields of science, including psychology, medicine, and astronomy, and in turn, the advancements in these fields of study will significantly improve human development globally. In part one of this essay, I'll highlight two phenomenon which our current quantum mechanics paradigm cannot explain. Quantum entanglement and a theory of everything capable of uniting gravity with the electromagnetic force. I'll then discuss two metaphysical concepts, the holographic universe and the unified field of consciousness, and how these complementary ideas provide a stronger foundational view of physics than our current one. In part two, I'll provide historical context as to why the exploration of consciousness has been relegated to a fringe science and its researchers frequently dismissed as pseudoscientists. Specifically, I'll highlight the two power structures who have exerted the most control over the individual's exploration of consciousness over the past two millennia. First, the dogma of the Catholic Church, and second, the dogma of scientific materialism. In part three, I'll argue that society is currently in the midst of an archaic revival where we return to the wisdom of the ancient spiritual traditions and recognize that mind and matter are in fact one. I'll further argue that this revival is being driven both from the top down and from the bottom up. From the top down in that the body of scientific evidence in support of a consciousness-based paradigm is now so strong that conventional physicists will soon be forced to accept the validity of their models. From the bottoms up because individuals across the world are waking up to their true nature and to the importance of consciousness. To that end, I'll specifically highlight the resurgence in psychedelic therapies and the continued growth of the Transcendental Meditation Movement as a simple, practical way for people to integrate higher planes of consciousness into their daily lives. I hope to provide the readers and listeners with a thought-provoking work that challenges our preconceived notions on the nature of reality, that provides the historical context as to why our current paradigm is so broken, and that provides a practical roadmap for individuals seeking to explore consciousness further. It is my sincere belief that through a collective elevation in the consciousness of humanity, We will soon shift to a consciousness-based scientific paradigm and in turn open up the development of society to a world of infinite possibility. Part 1. How a consciousness-based cosmology corrects for the current reductionist model. At the risk of gross oversimplification, most conventional scientists ground their understanding of physics in breakthrough theories from the first half of the 20th century. 
Specifically, I'm referring to Albert Einstein's general and special theories of relativity and the model of quantum mechanics developed by Niels Bohr. During this time, quantum physics discovered that some subatomic particles demonstrated identical polarization no matter how far apart they were. This correlation between separated particles in a holistic quantum state is known as entanglement. Einstein was troubled by these discoveries as it implied subatomic particles were interconnected in a way that he didn't understand. In 1935, he and two colleagues published a paper in which they argued Bohr's findings could not possibly be correct. Their argument was based on the idea that polarization would imply instantaneous communication between photons, a clear violation of Einstein's special theory of relativity, which states that nothing can travel faster than the speed of light. Bohr's response was simply that Einstein et al. had based their arguments in a fundamental error in considering the two photons as separate in the first place. Rather, they were part of one indivisible system, and it was meaningless to think of them otherwise. Over time, most physicists came to accept Bohr's views on polarization, although most ignored the profound implications of this interconnectedness. Thankfully, David Baum was not one of those physicists. As Baum dove into the foundations of quantum physics in the 1940s and 1950s and looked to develop a better model of cosmology, he became increasingly convinced of the importance of wholeness in any complex system, that the behavior of parts are actually organized by the whole, and that subatomic particles are not independent things, but rather part of an indivisible system. This led to Baum's theory that the universe could more accurately be described as a quantum hologram through which everything could be considered part of the same continuum. That is not to say the universe is a giant undifferentiated mass, but rather what we perceive as different things at both the gross level of the senses and at the subatomic level are really relatively independent subtotalities. Baum chose a hologram as the appropriate visualization to demonstrate this phenomenon of entanglement. Baum felt holography represented his theory perfectly because holographic paper captures interference patterns of waves. When shining a light at this paper, the entirety of the wave pattern is reproduced. Importantly, you can cut the holographic paper into smaller pieces, yet the hologram produced will still reflect the entirety of the wave pattern. Baum felt this was exactly how the universe works, in which each seemingly localized, differentiated aspect of the cosmos is in fact a subtotality of one undivided whole. Around the same time that Baum was refining the model of quantum mechanics, Maharishi Mahesh Yogi was living in India's Himalayas, seeking to unravel life's mysteries and learning ancient Vedic wisdom from his teacher, Guru Dev. Maharishi, who'd also studied modern physics at Allahabad University, came to recognize that the field of pure consciousness as described in the Vedas and the unified field theory pursued by modern physicists, also known as a search for the theory of everything, were one and the same thing. Maharishi therefore decided to leave the Himalayas to teach Transcendental Meditation, or TM, as a practical means for people to connect with the field of pure consciousness and to help bridge the gap between Vedic philosophy and modern science. Maharishi explained that the entire cosmos could be described as a self-interacting field of being, or pure consciousness. This field of being ranges from the unmanifested, absolute, eternal state to the gross, relative, ever-changing states of phenomenal life as the ocean ranges from the eternal silence at its bottom to the great activity of ever-changing nature on the surface of the waves. Maharishi noted that the being has two sides, one being absolute, the other being relative. Years earlier, Einstein had argued that everything in the universe is relative and the existence of worlds, forms, and phenomena 
can only be accounted for in terms of relativity. Maharishi would state that Einstein's theory was not wrong, but rather incomplete, as it only concerned itself with the realm of manifest creation. Maharishi further recognized that Einstein was open to the possibility of one common denominator of all creation, as Einstein had spent the last years of his life searching for a unified field theory, an elusive theory of everything. In 1966, Maharishi noted that the day does not seem far off when some theoretical physicist will succeed in establishing a unified field theory. Maharishi's prediction proved correct when in 1987, physicist John Hagelin published Is Consciousness the Unified Field? A Field Theorist's Perspective. In his paper, Hagelin provides compelling arguments that the unified field theory is in fact a unified field of consciousness the exact same as the field of pure consciousness described by ancient Vedic rishis for thousands of years and introduced to the West by Maharishi. His theory of the unified field of consciousness provides a model uniting Einstein's geometric theory of gravity with the electromagnetic force, a feat that still eludes modern physicists and string theorists today who almost universally overlook the importance of subjective consciousness in understanding cosmology. But if Bohr's, Maharishi's, and Hagelin's complementary theories provide such better explanatory models for the universe than the one accepted by mainstream science, why has there been such resistance to and ignorance of their theories? Why does our society continue to dismiss anyone researching the science of consciousness or the concepts of holism and holography as pseudoscientific? For that exploration, we have to go back in time approximately 1,600 years before Baum and Maharishi lived. Part 2. The Institutionalized Suppression of Conscious Thought Section 1. The Suppression of Direct Experience of God by Bonotheistic Religions Many in Western civilization today tend to view organized religion skeptically. Our society can perceive religious institutions as hierarchical, monotheistic power structures with rigid dogma. That there are strict rules telling you what you can and cannot believe. And that these religious institutions have historically interwound themselves with the interests of private industries, governments, and militaries in order to extend their control into all aspects of society. So it's natural that as the control of organized religions eroded during the scientific enlightenment, people started to question these organizations. However, I will argue that by also rejecting ideas of spiritual planes of existence and higher states of consciousness, that Western civilization effectively threw the baby out with the bathwater. That consciousness is the foundational essence of the universe, and any scientific paradigm that rejects the interconnectedness of mind and matter will always be incomplete. Further, again at the risk of gross oversimplification, I will argue that a perception of organized religion has been negatively impacted by a small number of bad apple organizations. These bureaucracies leveraged monotheistic, patriarchal power structures to benefit those at the top of the organization. Specifically, I'm referring to the orthodox sects of the Abrahamic religions of Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. For purpose of this essay, I'll focus on the Catholic Church as it held the largest and strongest position in dominating world culture over the past two millennia. I'll argue that the origins of most spiritual traditions have striking similarities, what is known as the perennial philosophy. Included in these spiritual traditions are the mystical sects of the Abrahamic religions, such as Gnosticism and Christianity, the Kabbalah and Judaism, and Sufism and Islam. Eknathi Swaran summarized the findings of the perennial philosophy as follows. Number one, there is an infinite, changeless reality beneath the world of change. Number two, this same reality lies at the core of every human personality. Number three, the purpose of life is to rediscover this reality experientially. That is, to realize God while here on earth. 
These traditions simply use different ancient language for the unified field of consciousness theory. However, my hypothesis is that the handful of monotheistic dominating religious institutions have purposefully suppressed records of the perennial philosophy. They have restricted the free exploration of conscious thought and the direct experience of God through both explicit and implicit means, including by prohibiting the usage of psychedelic sacraments in order to maintain their control of society. In 325 AD, the first Council of Nicaea was held by Roman Emperor Constantine I. The council established universal church doctrine for the first time and helped lay the foundations for what became the Roman Catholic Empire. The newly established principles, including the divinity of Christ alone, whereas many credit the Gnostic principle of direct experience of God as being instrumental of the spread of Christianity in the centuries immediately following Christ's death. This idea emphasized the universality of God and that the potentiality of experiencing God directly while here on earth is latent within every single person. I'll return to the Gnostic shortly. In the 1700 years since the First Council of Nicaea, the Catholic Church became, to varying degrees, one of, if not the single most, powerful institutions in human civilization. It has been aligned with various governments, militaries, private enterprises, and transnational organizations, and the Church's ability to influence the flow of information is irrefutable. Some of the most important ways the Church was able to suppress ideas that conflicted with official Church dogma include... One, the suppression of the Gnostics in the centuries following the First Council of Nicaea. Two, the burning of the Library of Alexandria in the 5th century AD. Three, the Holy Crusades in the 10th to 13th centuries AD. And four, the Inquisition, including the destruction of Tenochtitlan and Aztec records in 1521 and the Mayan Codices in 1562. At various times, the Church would use tactics including witch trials, burning at the stake, and forcing pagans and heretics to convert at the point of a sword. As the church's power and territory of control grew over the centuries, records of religious traditions that conflicted with its dogma were systematically destroyed. People practicing other religious faiths were pushed further and further into the underground, their knowledge and ideas suppressed. Then in 1436, the church's control on the flow of information started to dissolve when Johannes Gutenberg invented the printing press. Like all new technologies, there were negative unintended consequences— the press, for example, was used to mass-produce the book Malleus Maleficarum, or The Witch's Hammer, written by two Dominican officiants in 1486, which was instrumental in spurring and sustaining the witch-hunting hysteria in Europe during the 15th to 18th centuries. However, in the long run of history, the information revolution created by the printing press proved instrumental in human development. The development of movable type exponentially increased the rate at which text could be replicated, leading to higher rates of literacy and, in turn, the scientific enlightenment. The enlightenment, in connection with the Protestant Reformation, helped loosen the grip on conscious thought held by the Catholic Church and opened up research to the scientific method. However, the Church's power was far from over, and they were able to influence the direction of civilization in the age of scientism. One important way they did so was in supporting the idea of mind-body separateness, also known as Cartesian duality. In the 17th century, the philosopher René Descartes established this concept, which argued that the mental state cannot exist outside the body and that the body cannot think. This paradigm of thought gained widespread acceptance, and in the several hundred years after, we've continued to relegate matters of the physical world to scientists and matter of the spiritual world to religions without recognizing that they're one and the same thing. Importantly, Descartes published his Meditations on First Philosophy eight years after Galileo was placed on house arrest, having barely survived after refuting church doctrine that the earth was the center of the universe. So Descartes understood full well the consequences of challenging the church's domain of the spirit. 
Descartes' later works included the possibility of a metaphysics that united body and soul, but the deed had already been done, and Cartesian duality became the established paradigm. The broken paradigm of Cartesian duality remains so deeply rooted in the field of conventional science that very few academics today dare to question its validity. The few who do are often ridiculed and dismissed as pseudoscientists practicing parapsychology, but I predict not for much longer. Section 2, The Suppression of Psychedelic Sacraments Returning to the Gnostic Christians, I mentioned this sect is believed to have been instrumental in spreading Christianity in the first few centuries following Jesus Christ's death. Little was known about the teaching of the Gnostics until the discovery of the Nag Hammadi scriptures in 1947. The scriptures supported many of the principles described in the perennial philosophy and included the most complete version of the Gospel of Mary Magdalene yet discovered, which importantly had not been included in official church doctrine at the Council of Nicaea. Brian Marescu recently published research on the origins of the Gnostics and what's known as the pagan continuity hypothesis with a psychedelic twist. Leveraging a review of ancient Greek classics and the emerging science of archaeochemistry, Murarescu provides evidence that the original Eucharist of the Gnostics could have borrowed traditions from the Greeks and their Eleusinian mysteries. It may have been a psychedelic spiked wine, which included a substance similar to LSD called ergot. This sacrament, the ritual and recipe for which were maintained exclusively by women, helped to occasion profound mystical experiences for its drinkers. As the church fathers consolidated power in the centuries following the Council of Nicaea, this literal sacrament could have been replaced with the metaphorical, psychedelic-free wine used in Mass today. Further, the church decreed that men only could serve as religious officiants, a decision which still holds today in 2022. In effect, the institution of the Catholic Church used official dogma to suppress women from holding office and individuals from using psychedelic medicines to explore conscious thought. Both of these are tactics used by the prevailing power structures that shape society today. Fast forward to 1970, and the counterculture revolution of the 1960s came to a crashing halt with the passage of the Controlled Substances Act, or CSA. The counterculture revolution in the West emphasized spirituality, embraced unity, and welcomed the exploration of psychedelic medicines. This revolution occurred at the confluence of a unique mix of ideas and cultures. This included teachers who brought Eastern spiritual traditions to the West like Maharishi, people who facilitated psychoanalysis under the influence of psychedelics like Timothy Leary, and men like Ram Dass and Alan Watts who attempted to bridge the language of both groups. However, this cultural revolution threatened the existing power structure of the day, the United States government. The CSA of 1970 included specific substances like psychedelics and cannabis, not due to reasons governed by medical science, but rather for political gain and population control. At one point, Richard Nixon referred to Timothy Leary as the most dangerous man in America. As John Ehrlichman, Nixon's assistant to the president for domestic affairs, later admitted on record, you want to know what this war on drugs was really all about? The Nixon campaign in 1968 and the Nixon White House after that had two enemies, the anti-war left, and black people. You understand what I'm saying? We knew we couldn't make it illegal to be either against the war or black, but by getting the public to associate the hippies with marijuana and blacks with heroin, and then criminalizing both heavily, we could disrupt those communities. We could arrest their leaders, raid their homes, break up their meetings, and vilify them night after night on the evening news. Did we know we were lying about the drugs? Of course we did. The year after Nixon signed the Controlled Substances Act into law, the United Nations, with the pressure of the U.S. State Department, passed the 1971 Convention on Psychotropic Substances Treaty, banning the use of psychedelic medicines globally. 
This ban on psychedelics effectively shut down all scientific research into their use in psychotherapy. It also made it illegal for people to have sovereignty over the exploration of their own conscious thought and removed one of the simplest, most effective tools for occasioning mystical experiences. Tools that I hypothesize we will discover were involved in the origins of most of the world's religions. These plant medicines continue to be used in spiritual traditions around the world today, including the use of mescaline by Native American tribes and ayahuasca, or the vine of the souls, by Native tribes in the Amazon. Luckily, the tide started to turn on the prohibition of plant sacraments in the mid-2000s when traditional academia embraced a resurgence in psychedelics research. This research renaissance is taking place at the same time as humans globally are exploring other modalities to reach higher states of consciousness and are looking to deepen their spiritual practices. At the same time that legal psychedelics are becoming available for increasing numbers of people to access, daily spiritual tools like yoga and meditation are gaining widespread adoption. In the final section, I'll propose a roadmap whereby both psychedelic medicines and the practice of transcendental meditation could be used in a complementary fashion to rapidly expand the collective consciousness and usher in this new scientific paradigm. Part 3. A Roadmap for this Paradigm Shift Western society has seen a unique convergence in the last few decades of two seemingly unrelated trends. One, higher participation rates in spiritual practices. And two, renewed interest in the psychedelic experience. My hypothesis is that as further research is published on both the effects of habitual spiritual practices like transcendental meditation and the use of psychedelic therapies in occasioning mystical experiences, we'll discover that these two phenomena are highly related. Specifically, that the experience of ego dissolution during certain psychedelic trips transcends the individual temporarily into a separate state of consciousness similar to the state of cosmic consciousness or CC. Drug-induced ego dissolution refers to the phenomenon that occurs under classical psychedelics when the person experiences significant disruption of self-consciousness in terms of their sense of self, self-awareness, phenomenal selfhood, or self-experience. Cosmic consciousness represents a unique physiological state which can be made permanent through the integration of meditative states in daily activity, including through the practice of transcendental meditation. I'll take a few minutes to explain both TM and CC now. In addition to bridging the gap between Vedic philosophy and modern science, Maharishi Mahesh Yogi also taught the practice of transcendental meditation. TM is a simple yet highly effective way for individuals to integrate the absolute field of pure consciousness into their daily lives in the world of relativity. TM has been learned by over 10 million people globally and involves a simple mantra-based meditation practiced twice daily for 20 minutes per session. This integration of meditation and daily activity releases stress from the nervous system and facilitates the achievement of higher states of consciousness outside of the traditional states of waking, sleeping, and dreaming. During TM, the meditator can achieve the fourth state of consciousness known as transcendental consciousness or resting alertness. This fourth state has been described as awareness of the fundamental self-referral level of pure consciousness. That is, awareness of awareness itself. Through continued development of the nervous system and integration of daily meditation with activity, Maharishi taught that those same individuals can eventually achieve permanent higher states of consciousness, known as the fifth, cosmic consciousness, the sixth, divine or God consciousness, and the seventh, unity consciousness. These three higher states of consciousness have collectively been referred to as states of enlightenment, by spiritual beings and mystics throughout the ages. The experience of transcendental consciousness is at first episodic, occurring only when in a deep meditative state. However, as Robert Oates explains, 
The alteration of transcendental consciousness with waking consciousness produces an evolution of consciousness or growth towards higher states of consciousness. This alteration habituates the mind to both styles of awareness and both styles of functioning, leading to a new situation. The mind and brain can maintain both states of consciousness at the same time. Eventually, the individual develops a permanent state of cosmic consciousness, the first stage of enlightenment. They are now said to be living what Maharishi calls 200% of life, 100% of the relative value of life, supported by 100% of its absolute, unbounded spiritual value. Section 1. Experimental Proof for Higher States of Consciousness, the Science of Being I understand that this can all sound like magic or woo-woo to those skeptical of the powers of consciousness. Many people who question why we even have a subjective consciousness, what David Chalmers refers to as the hard problem of consciousness, have come to the conclusion that it is simply a byproduct of random mutations that occurred during the evolution of the human brain. However, the evidence continues to build that there is more to consciousness than just the experiences of the waking, sleeping, and dreaming states. In the decades since Baum and Maharishi first proposed their theories, an abundance of scientific research has been published that supports a consciousness-based physics of the cosmos. In 1982, Elaine Aspect provided experimental proof of non-locality and quantum entanglement, showing irrefutably that some force is not bound by the speed of light. The scientific research conducted by Maharishi International University over the past decades has resulted in incredible findings, including dramatic improvements in brain coherence, holistic intelligence, moral reasoning, memory, and self-actualization as a result of TM. Studies of TM starting in 1970 defined the experience of transcendental consciousness as a unique physiological state characterized by, one, a predominance of mid-speed alpha waves, and two, increased synchrony or coherence in brainwave patterns over widely separated regions of the brain. Then, we examined the developing body of research on psychedelics. As I mentioned earlier, Studies on psychedelics during the 1960s showed tremendous promise, but almost all medical research came to a halt for 50 years. The CSA of 1970 named psychedelics Schedule I substances, imposing significant red tape and bureaucratic roadblocks for anyone looking to do research on the therapies. Thankfully, a resurgence in psychedelics research kicked off in the mid-2000s when Roland Griffiths of John Hopkins University published research on psilocybin, also known as magic mushrooms, that found, when administered under supportive conditions, psilocybin occasioned experiences similar to spontaneously occurring mystical experiences. The ability to occasion such experiences prospectively will allow rigorous scientific investigation of their causes and consequences. The subsequent years have shown tremendous promise in the world of psychedelics for a host of mental disorders, including stress, anxiety, PTSD, and addiction. Several esteemed research institutions now have dedicated psychedelics research centers, including Johns Hopkins, University of California, NYU, Mount Sinai, Massachusetts General, and the University of Wisconsin. Not much research has yet been done on the relationship between meditation and the psychedelic experience, despite the intriguing overlap between the phenomenology and neurophysiology of meditation practice and the psychedelic state, in particular as it relates to the sense of ego dissolution or self-loss. That said, a team of researchers at Imperial College London recently reviewed available evidence on psychedelics and meditation and proposed that self-consciousness may be best construed as a multidimensional construct and that self-loss, far from being an unequivocal phenomenon, can take several forms. 
My hypothesis is that the temporary experience of ego dissolution that can occur during a psychedelic experience offers the user a glimpse into the permanent state of cosmic consciousness, which can be developed over time through habituation. Section 2. A Roadmap for Experiencing and Making Permanent Higher States of Consciousness. The Art of Living. The final step in ushering in this new consciousness-based paradigm will be to help individuals directly experience these higher states of consciousness. Putting the knowledge into scientific terms is all well and good, but the true change will only occur when people figure out how to connect directly with the field of pure consciousness, what Maharishi referred to as the art of living. In society today, there is renewed interest in psychedelics as a result of the clinical resurgence in the sector. Further, the regulatory winds have changed in the war on drugs, and after 38 states have legalized some form of medical or adult use cannabis, Oregon will be the first to start legal psilocybin sales at the beginning of 2023. Unfortunately, many people do not have a reliable spiritual practice to help make sense of the transcendental experiences occasioned while on psychedelics. Others may start to chase those feelings of nirvana experienced on psychedelics rather than using them as a tool to open up the door to higher states of consciousness. As Maharishi explained, the problem of drug abuse is the problem of ignorance. The war on drugs and its prohibition of psychedelics has created a society in which people often take these substances without the mindset of informed understanding of the effects of the drug, without knowing the proper dosage to take, and without knowing the setting in which to do so in a safe environment. Further, the taboo around psychedelics prevents people from understanding how to use these medicines for their highest and best purpose as a tool that provides a glimpse into the true nature of consciousness and who we are as humans. Transcendental meditation, on the other hand, provides a simple and effective means for achieving permanent states of higher consciousness. Unfortunately, the numerous scientifically proven benefits of TM continue to go unnoticed by most people in Western society today. In a society that demands immediate results, most are unwilling to undergo the months or years required to incorporate TM into one's daily life and achieve a permanent state of cosmic consciousness. Many don't know what they don't know, and so it takes a person with a relatively highly developed level of consciousness to pursue learning transcendental meditation in the first place. Further, because of our dominant culture of scientism, many deny the existence of spiritual realms and dismiss the potential benefits of meditation as pseudoscience without first examining the scientific results. Therefore, I propose a clinical study to measure the effects of psychedelics used to occasion a mystical experience in conjunction with long-term daily practice of transcendental meditation. I envision a study in which volunteers start with a small number of high-dosage psychedelic sessions with the intent of occasioning a mystical experience. These psychedelic sessions would then be augmented with the practice of TM for 20 minutes twice daily for an extended period, say 12 to 6 months. I believe that such a study could be of interest to patients who would not otherwise pursue psychedelic therapy or TM on a standalone basis. The psychedelic experience could provide for the immediate results of a, of a mystical experience for people who would otherwise be unwilling to develop a habitual spiritual practice. In the eternal worlds of Aldous Huxley, to insist upon using the more difficult ways to attain the mystical state is rather like having to burn down your farmhouse every time you want roast pork. TM would then provide a simple, effective on-ramp for these patients to permeate the state of cosmic consciousness experienced briefly during their psychedelic trip. I expect that the results of such a study would demonstrate improvements in mental health, creativity, and self-actualization that are at least as strong as the outstanding results displayed by psychedelic therapies and TM practice individually. Conclusion. I believe we are on the brink of a paradigm shift in the scientific establishment, one where the superiority of a consciousness-based cosmology finally overtakes the broken paradigms of quantum mechanics and mind-body duality.
The mountain of evidence is now so strong that it will soon be unfeasible for conventional scientists to continue denying their results. Further, as more research is done on the history of religions, I predict we will find further evidence for the perennial philosophy and the usage of psychedelic sacraments to help individuals directly experience God. I hope that through the combination of psychedelic therapy sessions and ongoing transcendental meditation practice, large numbers of people can quickly achieve permanent states of cosmic consciousness. Through the top-down body of scientific literature and the bottoms-up direct experience of higher states of consciousness, we can help to usher in this new scientific paradigm.